5: Hi, Casper and Vanessa. Hi, Vanessa and Casper. Hi, Casper,
6: Vanessa, Ariana.
3: I'm Casper Ter Kyle,
5: and I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And
3: this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Vanessa, today is an outpost edition, which I'm very excited about, and we're going to have a special guest join us in the second half of the show. Maya Banji is calling in from Los Angeles, California, and I'm really excited for that conversation.
5: People from Los Angeles are the best people.
3: <laughs> That's what I'm learning.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: You, Ariana, Maya. Yeah. That's three. That's a trend.
5: (laughs) That is. (laughs) Goofy's from L.A. Really? Yeah. But also, I'm really excited. Listening to voicemails is something that we take very seriously. We listen to every single message that gets sent in. Ariana says it's the best part of her job, which Casper and I find a little hurtful. But um, (laughs) I mean, you would think it would be working with us, right? (laughs) But we just, you know... When we talk about treating a text as sacred, we say that the three necessary components are faith, rigor, and community. And as much as we are a community of three in the studio every week, three is a small community. And this is a way for us to have people disagree with us and push us in our thinking and point out gaping things that we've missed. And I think that our, yours and my sacred practice is stronger
3: for it. Absolutely. And I mean, it's it's about that third piece, community, but it's also about rigor and faith, I think, because it means that we're sifting the text through many other experiences, not just our own. We're engaging with the rigor of hearing one another, even when we disagree. And I think the faith that, you know, we're not crazy to do this because there's other people traveling along with us. So... An outpost is a time for us to kind of reflect and think about where we are in the book, but it's also really a time to test our assumptions and dig deeper into some of the conversations we've had. So our first voicemail today is from Angela Higginson, who was with us for our live show just a month ago.
2: Hey, y'all. My name is Angela. I study cognitive science at the University of Georgia. I wanted to talk to you all about the strange connection I feel with Harry. So I should start off by saying that I have alopecia... It's an autoimmune disorder that causes your hair to fall out, and I've had it since I was six. Right now, I barely have hair on my head, eyebrows, and eyelashes. I wear a wig and makeup every day to cover it, but I'm also very open about my experience. But whenever I do tell someone about it, their eyes always flicker up to my forehead. They have that same fixated look that Harry describes when people look at his scar, but only in my case they're looking at my wig line. In the first few chapters of the fourth book especially, over and over again, it seems like Harry has to deal with that obnoxious glance. Personally, it makes me feel dehumanized when someone stares at this physical attribute of mine and seems to make a series of judgments right in front of me. For Harry, these people look at his scar and think they understand all about him. He's the boy who lived, just like I'm the girl with no hair. I also have a fascination with body language. In one book or another, I read that staring directly at someone's forehead can be one of the most disconcerting looks you can give them, and in most cases, it results in a negative reaction and distaste for the onlooker. But both in my and Harry's case, the person is normally acting out of curiosity, not malice. So when it happens to me, I always think to myself, what would Harry do? And I'm fine. Thank you guys so much. I love the show and it was great to see you guys in Atlanta. Bye.
3: Angela, thank you so much for sharing that. And I so appreciate both your courage and boldness of just being open about the fact that you wear a wig and then also so forgiving in the moments when people, out of curiosity, as you say, look up at your forehead. And I was thinking I'd probably do the same thing. And so your spaciousness and willingness to understand that as curiosity rather than malice i think is so powerful and i love the way that you draw on harry you know a character from the books to kind of inform how to respond in a moment like that i've never thought about forehead so much it's so good
5: and what you shared about how somebody staring at your forehead can be so disconcerting that really resonates with me i'd never thought of that i'd never heard that before but that makes sense to me right it's like i am an inch lower if you look an inch lower you will see me but you are you're not seeing me in that frustration and that sort of like out of body experience.
3: Yeah, it's like you're being looked at rather than You're being looked for. Oh, yeah, because when we look into each other's eyes, there's a searching. This actually reminds me of, you know, when you're in a big room and everyone's sitting down looking at the front, maybe there's a speaker or some sort of service going on. And someone walks in at the back or there's a commotion at the back. And the temptation is to kind of look behind you and see what's going on. And I'm always trying to manage myself and just stay focused on why we're here. Because mm. I feel it's the same thing. It's like, where am I putting my attention? Am I putting my attention on the thing that's real and human and the reason why we're gathered? Or am I kind of looking at something and distracting myself? That might seem a little a strange comparison, but I feel it's connected.
5: No, I agree. You know, it's something that a philosopher who I know means a lot to all three of us, Simone Weil says, which is that attention and love are the same thing, mm. right? That if you're paying close attention to something, that is a form of love. And so you have to pick what to love. I don't want to love the chaos right now. I want to love the thing that I came here, you know, with intention. I want to love the person, not the fact that they have alopecia.
3: Right. And
5: that these are choices, what we pay attention to. And therefore, you know, it's loving attention.
3: Mm. Thanks again, Angela.
5: This next voicemail is from Jennifer Astorius. Hi, Vanessa and
4: Casper. I listened to your episodes on the Quidditch World Cup and the Dark Mark, and I wanted to share a few thoughts. I've been a huge fan of Hermione's spew campaign, but the training I've received recently around advocacy with victims and survivors of sexual assault has prompted me to see Hermione's views on house self-liberation as quite problematic. Despite even our Hermione's noblest intentions, she assumes that she knows what's best for each and every house self. She comes from a place of privilege where she's a witch, she has a wand, and is, of course, incredibly intelligent. And she takes a stance that all the house elves need to be freed as soon as possible. Now, of course, there is no world in which sexual assault or the enslavement of house elves is okay. However, we see that not all house elves view freedom in quite the same way that Hermione does. Dobby's just elated when he's freed in book two from the abusive confines of Malfoy Manor. Winky, on the other hand, is devastated and her world is turned upside down when she's no longer able to serve the Crouches. One of the philosophies we work with as advocates is that each and every survivor knows their own truth and that we as advocates should never be ones to say otherwise. One of the most important parts of empowering sexual assault survivors is giving them back their power and their control and their voices. Part of that is allowing them to claim their own truths. Hermione does not include the voices of house elves like Winky in her approach and is just perpetuating another form of oppression by speaking for them and excluding them from the conversation. It's wrong for us to withhold power from Winky by telling her that the loss she's feeling is wrong uh, or that she'll be eventually grateful for this newfound freedom But Winky's
5: truth is real and is valid. Jennifer, I think that directing our eye towards spew, which we haven't gotten to yet, but is very problematic, is really helpful. And I think you're exactly right that listening to Winky is the central missed opportunity here, that Winky's voice and Winky's experience is entirely valid and that we are failing her by not listening to her in this moment. One of the things that your voicemail reminded me of is there's a viral video right now of Dustin Hoffman and John Oliver having this conversation about the allegations of Dustin Hoffman being a sexual harasser. And John Oliver says to him, well, don't you think as a man of power and Dustin Hoffman looks at John Oliver with such like confusion and goes, oh, am I a man with power? Wow. And that just crystallized for me something that I can be very dismissive of men in that moment. But I think that there's a call in that, that we all have to be aware of our power. And I think maybe Hermione is only seeing lack of power and is advocating for Winky's lack of power, but she's therefore taken away all of Winky's power, whereas Winky still has the power to know her own mind and heart. And so I think we have to get better about acknowledging when one another and when we have more power than we think we do.
3: The other way to expand this question for me that I find so difficult to find a line on is, you know, especially as a gay man, the experience of internalized homophobia that one grows up with. And I can imagine that Winky, who is in a position of being marginalized in society, has perhaps embodied and kind of internalized some of the negative narratives about what it is to be a house elf. And it is so important to let people and ourselves define their truth and to express that and, and claim that powerfully, just as Jennifer was saying. But I also feel like there's an internal liberation work that needs to happen for all of us, but perhaps especially as a gift for people who have been marginalized or carry marginalized identities in some way. So certainly I think we can point to Hermione's mistakes here as she's learning how to be you know, an advocate for social justice. But there's also a question of what opportunities is there for Winky to heal in some way.
5: Yeah.
3: Our next voicemail is from Jared Green.
1: Hi, Casper and Vanessa. This is Jared Green from Philadelphia. Uh, I just finished listening to your episode on Chapter 7, Bagman and Crouch, and I wanted to respond to the Havruta you did, uh, in which you asked why Fred and George bet all their money on the Quidditch match. You describe their act essentially as uh, a moment of recklessness that's partially in response to the relationship damage that happened in their fight with Molly, sort of a way to angrily thumb their noses at their mother, who just doesn't understand But I think you're missing something, both in the plot and in the temperaments of the Twins. I don't think this is a spur-of-the-moment decision. Uh, They've brought all their life savings with them, so they know they're going to place this bet. And it's a very specific and unlikely bet. They bet that Ireland will win, but Crum will get the snitch. And we know how rare it is for the team that gets the snitch to lose the match. So this isn't a bet that you would choose without thinking. They're taking a big risk here, but I think it's something that they've thought carefully about and they've planned in advance. They're taking a big risk, but it's not recklessness, it's confidence. I'm an early childhood educator, um, and in fact, I published a book about building resilience in young children. And one thing that I've found over the years is that the children who play in the ways that adults find the most risky are almost always the children who are most physically competent and the most able to bounce back from injuries. Adults looking from the outside perceive a big risk, but often the child who's hanging upside down from the monkey bars knows exactly what she's doing. This reminds me of the twins, uh, who take risks all the time, but they're very good at it, and they're able to handle the consequences. Unlike, say, Ron, who grouses for a week every time he gets caught by filch, the twins seem to let it roll off their backs. In fact, later in Deathly Hallows, George loses an ear and is immediately making puns about it. So all of this is very much in character with the twins. They're showing us how to follow through with plans and make well-considered risks, even in the face of unexpected setbacks and upsets. Uh, They're giving us a lesson in resilience. So that's something that I wanted to say. Uh, Thank you very much for the podcast. I love the show.
3: Jared, I love resilience as a theme. And it's definitely a very stimulating way to think about the twins, especially as they travel through the books together. And I think the fact that there's two of them really helps them have that resilience because they always have each other. But I'm not sure I can agree with you that this moment is a sign of resilience. I feel like Resilience would perhaps be them investing some of their money or thinking creatively about finding another investor or something else that helps their reduced stock grow again. This feels like they're betting the whole house on something that is not a surefire success. I feel resilience is not something where we strip the field bare and then hope that we get a large cash crop the next year. I feel resilience would be growing slowly and sustainably from a place of having been reduced. Does that make sense, Vanessa?
5: Yeah, but don't you think that this is the 16-year-old boy version of resilience?
3: <laughs> okay, in that case, I'm completely convinced.
5: I think the question of the teenage version of resilience gets to exactly what we were talking about in our last voicemail, but also just... To what extent do you let them bounce back and then when do you come in and protect them? Because sure, that kid on the monkey bars might know that they are capable of doing that. But children don't know when a stove is hot. And I think that this is a line that we always have to be walking. And like someone doesn't always know when they deserve better. Sometimes you have to say to someone, this is abuse and you don't have to deal with it. So, yes, I think that we have to honor the resilience in others and we have to leave people space and not save them when they don't need to be saved and let them fall so that they can learn to bounce back. But I also think we have to be watching out for each other. But, yeah, I am compelled by the idea that Fred and George are demonstrating reckless resilience but
3: resilience that's what i was going to say i think maybe it's both you know and life is not a clear sequence of emotions that end here and start there i think maybe we're seeing them in the midst of both demonstrating resilience and a little recklessness
0: imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time
7: This next voicemail was sent to us, and the
5: sender asked us to keep their name anonymous, so we will do that. And I just want to offer a trigger warning. The voicemail deals with some really difficult topics, and so if you would like to skip it or if you are listening with young children, it is 3 minutes and 20 seconds long, and so please skip forward.
6: Hi, Casper, Vanessa, Ariana. I have a response to your episode on The Dark Mark, uh, but I would like to remain anonymous. There was a small comment you made, uh, Casper, in this episode that spoke to me, and I hope I'm able to articulate my thoughts on it uh, well. While describing the violence that the Death Eaters play out against the muggles on the campsite, you speculated that the Death Eaters had had too much to drink, got carried away, and felt that their violence wouldn't matter because the muggles' memory would be obliviated anyway. This struck a chord with me um, because I am an incest survivor, and for all of my childhood, this violence was repressed. I have spent the past decade working to recover my memory, but know that much of my childhood is lost to me forever, like these Muckles' memories will be upon oblivion. Many people seem to think that repression is a personal response, one person's brain, erasing their history uh, for their survival, like a primal denial, but I see it differently. Repression, I believe to be a social act of violence against a person or people. My personal repression of the violence that happened to me would not have been possible without the denial and the gaslighting of me by my family and community. And this social repression is a violence, not only because it leaves victims vulnerable to continued violence, but also because it robs them of their own memory, which is essential to their sense of self and their understanding of the world. As much as the physical and emotional scars of the sexual abuse I endured haunt me, the loss of my past and identity also haunt me. To me, the wizarding world is engaged in a large-scale social repression of muggle memory, although so much of it is invisible to Harry, and therefore the text, Obliviation of Muggle Memory is likely a daily act in maintaining the secrecy of the wizarding world. It is not convincing to me that this secrecy is the best way for wizards to remain safe. It is not convincing to me that wizards have less power than muggles in this world. And in the second book of uh, the series, we even identify the way in which Obliviation can be just so violent to the people who experience it through um, Gildery Lockhart and the Obliviation spells he does on people in order to steal their stories and exploit them in that way. On the campsite, the Death Eaters take advantage of the social system they live in, enacting violence against muggles, and then they just wait for society to step in and erase those memories, as though the second act of violence somehow cancels out the first. Uh, I can tell you from experience that it doesn't work. The memory of violence lives in muggle bodies, and their gaps in memory, the rewriting of their sense of self, haunt them. The biggest failure of this series is that at the end, after yet another war, The social system goes back to old business and muggles remain in the dark, vulnerable to the violence of wizards and robbed of their ability to truly know themselves and the world that they live in.
3: Dear friend, thank you so much for this voicemail. I just had my hair stand up on the back of my neck just listening to your story. And I want to offer a blessing of courage and healing for you and anyone who shares aspects of your story also it is such a gift to hear your reflection and help us understand what's going on in these pages of the book but also understand what's going on in the world around us in ways that we might be too afraid to look at in the face so thank you for your courage in sharing this and and the gift that you've given us thank you
5: This next voicemail is from Annalisa from Athens, Greece.
8: Hi, Vanessa and Casper. This is
5: Annalisa calling
8: from Athens, Greece. Uh, I'm from the U.S. originally, but I've lived abroad over the last four years. And I'm calling to ask you guys a Haruta question that occurred to me during your episode on acceptance. In talking about the port key, Casper blesses Hermione, who is probably thinking to herself that there are planes and trains and so many other ways to get from A to B that are so much more comfortable than a port key. But she doesn't say any of this in the chapter. This made me think about Hermione, who is always spouting knowledge and how she never talks about the Muggle world. She could totally educate her fellow students about Muggles and correct their biases or misconceptions. So my question for you is, why doesn't Hermione speak about the muggle world more often? My answer, or one answer, is that she might have internalized that most wizards treat the muggle world as if it is entirely irrelevant. Throughout the books, no one apart from Arthur Weasley is ever curious about Hermione's background or childhood experiences. Maybe she feels like she has to push aside her own background and become an expert on the wizarding world in order to be accepted. This really rings true for me, having spent so much time living abroad. As someone constantly trying to integrate into new places, it feels like it's always my responsibility to assimilate into a new culture, and I feel that my own cultural values and customs are not that relevant to the people in my new environments. So I also want to offer a blessing to Hermione and others who might feel that their efforts and interests in a new environment are not reciprocated. Hermione's knowledge about the muggle world is incredibly important and valid, and I hope that someday she's able to share her expertise with someone who is genuinely interested.
5: Casper, do you think that there are people like on dates who are like, let's do a chavruta?
3: <laughs> <laughs>
5: this made me so happy. Alisa
3: did a great job of a great question and a really provocative answer.
5: Yeah. What do you think?
3: Uh, all I could do was just imagine... Hermione is like, headmistress and integrating both muggle and wizarding wisdom into the curriculum. Like, they'll be reading Jane Eyre. They'll be thinking about Bunsen burners.
5: Oh, yeah. It never occurred to me witches and wizards don't get to read Jane Eyre.
3: Exactly. They get probably very limited in their literary works.
5: Ah, oh, that is terrifying.
3: But I, I think Annalise has a great point that perhaps... Hermione's wealth of knowledge is not seen as legitimate. The academy disputes the foundations of muggle developments in science or literature or even travel methodologies
5: also maybe she thinks that like her knowledge on the topic of living as a muggle is too anecdotal right she doesn't necessarily have data about the muggle world she knows what it's like to brush her teeth you know in her house but she doesn't know what it's like in every house right like she doesn't have that academic hermione-ish knowledge
3: it's kind of like an embodied or experiential knowledge
5: right i do take Annalisa's point that When you are in another country as a guest, there isn't a ton of interest in your home culture. I'm trying to decide if I think that's a bad thing. Like, certainly the United States is a country of immigrants, and I want people to be celebrating their cultures. But when I'm in another country, I don't feel like people need to know about mine. But maybe that's because I'm from America. And I feel like that we have like such a sense of American exceptionalism that I'm almost embarrassed when I'm abroad. I'm like, you know more about my country than I know about yours, even though I'm in yours. So I think that power is at play here. Yeah, maybe it's about power. Maybe Hermione feels at this point in her life that the muggle world, to some extent, oppresses the wizarding world, and therefore she doesn't want to share that part of herself.
3: Yeah, I feel like America is such an inward-looking culture, and the rest of the world by its nature, to some extent, is an observer culture of America because of its kind of superpower status.
5: Yeah. I mean, I would be fascinated to learn what Hermione writes in her letters to her parents. Right. Like she can't call her parents on the phone. There doesn't really seem to be like a telephone at Hogwarts and there isn't a postman. So she has to communicate by owl with her parents. There's a real cultural clash happening here. And that would be fascinating to learn about how that is bridged because she is she's having to live into totally disparate cultures
3: yeah i can believe that Today, we're joined by Maya Banji, who is the CEO of SILA, which is an amazing organization that uses storytelling to create cultural change. She also works with Harness to center voices of underrepresented communities in popular culture and supports a number of Muslim student groups on the West Coast. Maya is basically a Wonder Woman, and she's with us today. Hello, Maya.
5: Hi, Maria. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, everybody.
3: We've been so looking forward to this conversation because I'm just enamored by the work that you're doing and by the conversation that I think we can have about Harry Potter. And it's right that we're talking about Goblet of Fire because this is your favorite book, right?
9: I, this is definitely my favorite book. I remember when I received it, I was actually in England at the time and it was magical, the experience.
3: So tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing and why you're passionate about it.
9: Yeah, so I come from a background of community organizing and um, working in kind of the nonprofit sector to really try to work directly with communities that are dealing with things like poverty and crime and um, lack of health insurance and things like that. And um, after the election in 2015, I actually ended up starting my own consulting firm because I was very interested in thinking through how is it that I can create new solutions for persisting social issues. And I ended up doing a lot of work. I'm based out of Los Angeles. I ended up doing a lot of work with the entertainment industry. So a lot of the things that I've been doing work around um, in this last year has been around storytelling and culture narratives and how is it that we as a country can really start to hear each other and hear the stories of, of the most vulnerable amongst us.
3: And what does that look like practically? Does that mean sitting down with screenwriters? Does it mean coming up with stories? Like, what what do you end up doing?
9: Yeah. So it's kind of the whole ecosystem, really. One of the things that my my company does is that we work with Disney on the Aladdin movie that's going to be coming out in 2019. So we've done a lot of work there with like script and casting, etc. But then with Harness, we work directly with studios and we go into writers' rooms and we bring in different communities into those writers' rooms. So a big victory we had was uh, a few weeks ago, we worked with This Is Us, which is is kind of the most widely watched television show on broadcast television. And we had the inclusion of a, a Sikh American character, a turban-wearing Sikh man, um, which was one of the first times there was a portrayal of, of a Sikh American on television. Wow. And that was like really wonderful for a community that's seen as being relatively invisible in mainstream culture.
3: And I guess for you as a Muslim and wearing hijab, Muslims in America are more visible than Sikhs, but often in a very negative way. What's been your kind of experience of thinking about Muslim identity being portrayed in popular culture?
9: So research shows that over 85% of the portrayals of Muslims in entertainment specifically is negative, but it tends wow. to be um, of of us as terrorists. And that has a really huge impact. Um, so for example, there's been a huge spike in hate crimes just even in the last week. So one of the things that happened was the current president tweeted out three anti-Muslim videos this past week that were put out by a very right leaning organization in in England right which is where my family is from and when that when those videos were released that same day because i work with a lot of muslim college students I mean, within a few hours of that, we were receiving reports of, for example, at UC Davis, uh, which is a local campus in California, there was a man hiding in the bathroom with a knife trying to hurt women wearing hijab on campus. And so that type of thing, it has an immediate impact on kind of the way that the community is perceived and the level of hate that is then demonstrated. Mm -hmm.
5: So first of all, Maria, just real quick, what do you think of um, Hermione? Pro, con?
9: Uh, I mean, she might just be the best character of
5: all time. But Great. I'm glad I asked. I wanted to make sure you weren't dead inside. So we had a great Havruta question that was proposed to us and that we engaged with earlier in the episode, which is, why do we think that Hermione isn't constantly spouting knowledge from her muggle upbringing, given that we know that Hermione loves to cite things, loves to be sharing the things that she knows? Why isn't she constantly updating everyone, as Casper says, on like, there are more comfortable ways to travel than with a port key, for example? Why do you think it is that she's not carrying her muggle knowledge into the wizard world? So I really relate to this question because as a hijab wearing
9: Muslim woman, most spaces that I'm in, I think I relate to Hermione when when she's in the magical world where she's kind of someone that's a little bit of an outsider, even as she is an insider and she has this access to this whole other way of life that's alien or different <laughs> to the people around her. And um and I think to me there's a joy of immersion and discovery. I could have said, hey, instead of a portkey, let's take a car or let's take a plane, you know? I, I could see her doing that. But I, I think there's this joy of like, let me immerse myself into this world um and and be able to explore and understand how how they live. I think that there's some real adventure to that. And I also think there's kind of this you don't want to always call out that you're different. I think with Hermione, she's such a amazing character and she's such a strong character already. And, and in some ways she's been targeted because she's different at the beginning of the books, right? Um, you see her being this quote unquote know-it-all and, and people really having trouble relating to her. And I think, I, I don't know, if I was Hermione, I, I wouldn't necessarily want to always share pieces of myself that call out how different I am because I want to be part of the community and I want to be immersed in this experience. And I think that there's this piece of, of really wanting to fully feel like you can connect with others. So I, I think that's something that calls to me.
5: Yeah. I have another text related question for you. We just got through the really difficult chapter of the Quidditch World Cup, and so I'm wondering what you make in this current context of seeing the dark mark in the sky as a hate crime or what lessons you feel like you can learn from that chapter, given all of the work that you do.
9: Yeah, so one of the things that I did this year because it it's been such an intense year for i think a lot of folks that are working with vulnerable communities is i started rereading the Harry Potter series okay. <laughs> and I think, March or April. And I spent several months just really immersed in in the books. And then I watched the movies after that as well. And it was this way of almost giving myself a layer of distance from some of the issues that were happening and giving myself kind of a, a, a space of imagination and creativity where I could think about these issues, but in a safer way and in a way that felt more kind of like I can actually access this. And I can think about this in a way that is hopeful because I know what happens in the end. And so one of the reasons why book four is my favorite book is because it starts to introduce these more mature themes around fear and around the other. And I think that if you look at characters like the house elves, as you mentioned in a previous episode, and You really start to see how it is that people are understood through bias, you know, and and how it is that, you know, our perceptions of people that are different from ourselves really sways the way that we treat them and how that can often be really harmful. Right.
3: I mean, that's one of the reasons why I appreciate book four as well is that we we really start to get confronted by the reality of the danger in the world and the multiple layers of systems of oppression. And frankly, the real threat that people are under, it seems to speak more truthfully about the world that we're in right now, especially now the targeted nature and, and the the language of hate and othering that we see as common discourse now, you know, in our culture is so similar to the kind of mud blood muggle narrative in the books that the parallels are so frightening. And as you say, sometimes a text can be a place where we can work out some of those questions with a little bit more safety and distance. And I think this is where, you know, Vanessa introduced at the beginning of the show that there were these three prongs that the whole project stands on. It, sacred texts need to be read in community they need to be read with rigor, and they need to be read with faith. And I'm curious to learn just a little bit more about your own practice as a Muslim. Like, Would you share with us perhaps some of the pieces of of your own practice that have shaped you or that continue to be important in your daily life?
9: So one thing that I think is really interesting about Islam is that we have a sacred text tradition as well. The Quran, which is our book is really considered the living miracle given by God to the prophet Muhammad peace be upon him so one of the reasons why I love your podcast is because my relationship to my faith tradition is is one that is really associated with a sacred text which is the Quran one of the things that really differs from Islam from other kind of monotheistic or other traditions is that The Qur'an for us is is like the source text. The Qur'an and then the the example of the prophet, peace be upon him, these are the two sources of authority within the faith. And it's something that has been preserved for 1,400 years. It's the most memorized book in the world. And literally one of the big things in our faith tradition has been the preservation of every single letter of the book.
3: One of the things that I remember learning at some point not being Muslim myself, was that in the same way that within Christianity, Jesus is really central, and the Bible, the scriptures are, of course, absolutely important in terms of doctrinal teaching and storytelling, but that in Islam, the Quran is a living embodiment of the word of God. And so it's actually more helpful if you're from a Christian perspective to imagine the Quran as analogous to Jesus more than the Bible. The primacy of the text is more so than any other religious context that I'm aware of, which I just think is so powerful.
9: Yeah, definitely. I'm, so even the Prophet, peace be upon him, is seen as the living embodiment of the Quran. Mm. So his example is understood through the book. Um, and the book is, is this living miracle. So, you know, Muslims believe that there is this long tradition of prophets, of messengers, of teachers who have been sent down to all people at all times, and that the Prophet Muhammad was, was the last of these. And so the reason why the Quran is so important is because it is a book that was given kind of at what we would consider closer to the end of times as like a living miracle in a way to access this tradition that has gone on for millennia. So we believe, obviously, we believe in Jesus, we believe in Moses as right. prophets, not necessarily as the son of God, and and that all of these traditions are part of one central tradition of Uh, recognizing the creator so i'm so
3: struck by that and and as you said that this culture of memorization of text the fact that this text is the most memorized in the world i mean that is so cool that investment in living the text and having the text imprinted in one's physicality and and spirit like that this is not just a text that one turns to in a physical way but that it's in your very body I, i think it's so powerful
9: yeah. And, and for for Muslims who pray five times a day, we're literally reciting from this book five times a day. It's kind of this metronome of your life of I step away from whatever it's, I'm doing and I, and I recenter and I take a moment to what we would consider meditate and connect and, and read from this text. And we do that five times a day.
3: Yeah. I love that image of prayer as a bridge of, of kind of stepping back into that flow of text that is always there, but you're kind of Stepping out of the, you know, of your daily experience and into that tradition. It's so beautiful. I'm going out on a limb here, but I have no idea if this is uh, reasonable to ask. Would you be willing to recite something? Is that something you'd be comfortable doing? (laughs)
9: Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, I my recitation is not like those the the people we were just talking about, but I can I can definitely recite something. I will recite the first chapter of the Quran, which is a chapter that we recite every at every prayer for our daily prayers. Mm. Um Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, Ar-Rahmanirrahim, Maliki Yawm al-Din, Iyaka Na'budu wa Iyaka Nasta'in, Ihdina al-Sirata al-Mustaqim, Sirata al-Labina namta alayhim, Ghyiril Maghdubi alayhim Ameen. For Muslims that are listening, if I butchered any of that recitation, my apologies.
3: (laughs) That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Maya. Well, Mario, we're so grateful that you're part of our community and for coming on the show today. I just want to offer a blessing to you and and the work that you're doing in the world. I know that probably every day it's a kind of new firestorm that you're facing. And we're just so grateful. Thank you for joining us.
9: Thank you for having me. And your podcast is one of the highlights of my week. So I really do appreciate what you all do here.
3: You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or leave us a review on iTunes. You can also send us a two-minute voicemail sharing a blessing or some thoughts to harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. Next week, we'll read Chapter 12, the Triwizard Tournament, through the theme of excitement. This episode was produced by Ariana Nedelman me, Kasper Kyle, and Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of the Panoply Network, where you can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. Huge thanks to everyone who sent a voicemail this week, Angela Higginson, Jennifer Asturias, Jared Green, and Annalisa. Huge thanks also to our very special guest, Maya Banji, who we love. Thanks to Hashi Hetage, Rebecca and Charlie Dudley, and of course, Stephanie Coulsell. We'll see you all next week. To it, to woo!
5: I know, you're too happy. It's awkward that you're wearing your owl costume. (laughs) Which one? (laughs) (laughs) You know which one. (laughs) You mean... One of many. You're terrible at this game. <laughs> TripAdvisor once saved me from staying at a really heinous hotel, so I would like to thank TripAdvisor personally.
3: Your, your thanks are accepted.
5: <laughs> Did you change your name to TripAdvisor? You, with your hair, sometimes look like someone who could be named Trip.
3: Oh, my! I would love that. Ugh, like Trent or Trip.
5: Trip. What if your last name was Advisor? This is my friend Trip. TripAdvisor.
8: you